Okay, welcome again. Today we're meeting, we're talking to Simon King from Octopus, who I first met because we were both mentoring on a, an accelerator in Cambridge. And I gave him my card and he mentioned that sort of particular logo on there, which I'm on the board of, Plumis, he was using in his own home, which is great. So we got to know each other and we haven't yet co-invested, but we're close, I'm sure. So Simon, could you just give us a bit of your background, education, what you've done abroad, etc., and, and why you've moved to Octopus? Yeah, of course. Well, thank you very much for the introduction, Peter. So my name's Simon King. I have been a principal at Octopus Ventures for the last six years, but I grew up just north of Oxford and was at school in the centre of Oxford during my, my secondary school years. I spent three years on the east coast of the US growing up as well, which gave me a different perspective on life. And then subsequent to uh, my secondary school education, I went to Cambridge to study natural sciences and then towards physics and after four years at Cambridge decided to take on another level of education and went down to Imperial to do my PhD. In, in what? What was that? Specifically in plastic solar cells but more broadly in organic electronics. I did three and a half or four years of the PhD at Imperial and then I was juggling with the decision as to whether to go down the academic track or to jump ship and go into the commercial world. I spent another 18 months as a postdoc at Imperial trying to work out that decision. At the end of that, I, I came to the conclusion that I love technology, but I love the application of technology in society. So I wanted to be in something that was closer to the market, a little bit faster moving than the, the pace of academic life. And so I left Imperial. I spent six months doing something totally different, working for a charity in Ghana, building primary schools. And after coming back from Ghana to the UK, I was applying for lots of different jobs, primarily actually in startups, trying to work in startups. I speculatively sent my CV across to Octopus and was lucky enough to get hired uh, off the back of that CV. And when was that? How long that was, was that? in 2012. So you've had five years, five and a half years. Yeah, so the beginning of 2012. So it'll come up for six years at the beginning of next year. Okay, we'll talk. Obviously, one of the reasons to have you in is to talk the difference between getting capital from VCs and angels and different behaviours and different advantages and disadvantages. So when you joined the organisation, what training course or something? What, how did you get to the point where you were allowed loose on <laughs> the community of startups? Yeah, of course. So I was very green, I have to say, when I joined Octopus. Uh, I'd come straight out of an academic career. So I, I knew about technology and about the technology world, but not necessarily about the commercial world. So it was a pretty aggressive learning curve, but that's something that I really enjoy. So then a number of different training courses kind of specifically to bring you up the curve on some of that. But a lot of it is also on the job and working with some of the fantastic people who were already in the team at Octopus Ventures. So I think the team was about 10 or so when I, when I joined. The vast majority of those still here and still working with the business today. I think the key learning for me coming from an academic background and going into a commercial organization was the way that data is presented externally. So that, that was a big learning for me. Whereas in an academic institution or university, you typically lead with the data and follow up with a conclusion and you're hoping that everybody else is coming to the same conclusion and following your kind of journey to that conclusion by looking at the data 
in the commercial world, you lead with the conclusion and then people will query the data if they've got time to. And it took me a little while to get that flip, actually. There's a book called The Pyramid Principle that's written by a bunch of consultants. And I, I do recommend that to academics who are coming out into the real world. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll put that into the show notes. I mean, we're talking about data here, but you're not talking about businesses necessarily that are generating data. You're talking about the conclusion being there's a market opportunity and we're going to be big in this market. And the data behind that is tech and route markets. Correct. Yeah. So oftentimes people want your view on whether is this a good business? You know, should we be progressing this to the next stage of our investment rather than I think initially when I came into the organization, I would be going through. Here's the market sizing data that I've done. Here's the, the kind of analysis of the business model. Here are the various bits and pieces. And when you put them together, I draw this conclusion. Whereas in a commercial setting, people are more interested in the conclusion you've got. And if they got specific questions about how you got there, then they'll query each of those. And of course, that's what due diligence is doing, isn't it? It's questioning those conclusions where there's not enough data. Can we talk for an example here, perhaps an early example that you can talk about where the conclusion was, you know, the pitch deck is the conclusion effectively, isn't it? Correct. Or the results from the pitch deck and how the data did or didn't work while you were unwinding the... Sure, yeah. Uh, so a good example would be Magic Pony, say a fantastic business which we've now exited, but we invested first in early 2015. That was one of the entrepreneur first businesses from one of their early cohorts that came out. We met the guys, just two of them at the point where we were looking to invest initially. It was a really early seed stage investment. Uh, not a lot of info around companies at that point. They had a big vision to disrupt the data compression space, particularly in video, where they saw a massive challenge. As you'll know, the amount of data that we're using on a daily basis, an annual basis, just continuing to increase exponentially. Many, mostly driven by video. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. over 80% of it. And I think uh, there's some statistics coming out showing that more than 50% of the traffic in the US at, at times last year was purely Netflix related. Mm -hmm. And so that's just one of the kind of hints at the problems and, and clearly all the, the various back and forth and net neutrality in the US as well pointing to that also. So we took a look at the business and the limited information that was available. We had a fantastic team and primarily at Octopus, we're looking for team first. I think that's true of, of most early stage investors, obviously, but also then the market opportunities. So what were the guys trying to do? What, what big problem in the world are they trying to tackle? Because we're looking for really disruptive technologies. And the third piece that we looked into in depth was What's the technology like? So who else is doing it? Have these guys cottoned on to something which is which is really you know, truly differentiated from anything else that's out there? And that was key and stand out with Magic Pony, actually. Did um, you do that by going outside or could you actually determine that internally within your own resources here? So we do both. We have a network of experts in different fields. We're a generalist investor. And so to some extent, we do rely on our wider network to give us pointers when we're, we're analyzing deeply technical businesses. I, within the fund, have, have been more focused on kind of machine learning and AI over the last few years. And Magic Pony was, was squarely in that space. So I was relatively familiar with what was going on more broadly in the kind of startup ecosystem and at least the, the published information that was coming out of the big corporates, the Googles, the Microsofts, etc. And I'd certainly never seen anything like what these guys were trying to do. Part of that was because they were taking something that was being done in medical imaging, super resolution, and applying it to video, which hadn't really been done before. So it was super novel. We had a look through all of their patents. We called on a couple of experts that we work with who are, who are deep in kind of either compression space or video space. 
and everybody was telling us we haven't seen this before this looks really exciting and that's what drove us to make the investment we will have a, a later podcast where somebody who did exactly the same turned it down <laughs> we'll find out why we've just been talking to him a few minutes ago so tell us so from that does the investment committee have to be unanimous in making the decision to invest is that your internal process or no so we are collegiately driven in that we we do look to a wide group of people to input into the decision-making process, but uh, we're primarily advocacy-based. So we're looking for champions internally within the team to say, yes, I think this is a, a really good business and we should be making an investment in it. They clearly can't do that by themselves, so they need to bring people up to their kind of level of enthusiasm in order to, to drive deals through. But no, we don't have to have like, the entire team saying, yes, we think this is a good idea. And so going back to the data, so the data that you had analysed and forecast and looked at your crystal ball led you to making that decision to invest, which we all know was a great result, wasn't it? Can we just talk about the journey between your investment and the result? Yeah, absolutely. So I was partly involved in the investment process that's writing the internal papers uh, and doing some of the due diligence work. But then I wasn't closely involved after we'd made the the investment. There are a couple of other people from Octopus who helped look after the company. So I I can't give you too much detail because I don't know it about what happened in the interim. But yeah, it was a fantastic success for us. So it was uh, sold to Twitter last year for a reported $150 million. Yes, great result. While we're talking about results, can we talk about one that's a failure? You don't need to name it necessarily. One way you'd invested and you had done the analysis of the data, but even that, and basically the data, because it is forecast data, was wrong. Yeah. Give us an idea of one or two or whatever, or is there any generic feelings you have about failure? Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, the the first generic feeling about failure is, if we don't have failures, we're not doing our job properly because simply we're in the business of taking risk. And if we have no failures, it means that we're not taking sufficient risk. If we don't have the failures, we're never going to have the successes. And so while it is, uh, it can be frustrating and it can be a painful process on all sides, it is part of the day job and, and we do have to recognise that that's the case. Yeah, in terms of, of specific examples, there was a business that I looked after that I was involved with and helped lead the initial investment in the transportation space. It was an aggregator of, of minicabs, it still is, and uh, we invested in 2013, I believe, and the business was growing phenomenally up to the point where we invested. So we invested in the Series A, a number of angels had invested in the seed round. They'd been growing a few hundred percent year on year over the past couple of years. It looked like a, a superb business, great management team. And unfortunately, not even six months post uh, making that investment, Uber chose London as their first international launch city. And as a result, the competitive landscape changed basically overnight for that business. Could you have foreseen that, do you think? I don't think so. When I look back at our investment decision, we had listed out a number of competitors. Uber was actually one of those competitors that we'd listed out. At that point, they were largely focused on black cabs in the US, which was a kind of more luxury end of the market. I think they they just launched UberX in San Francisco in the summer, and the data was not widely available about how successful that was. And Subsequent to San Francisco being a success, the guys raised a big chunk of money. So I think they raised $250 million from Google to start, and then three or four months later, raised another billion to launch internationally, uh, dropped straight into London, and the rest is kind of history. So 
there are always going to be these exogenous risks. You try and do the best that you can. We list them all out, but we recognise we're in the business where these risks exist. There's a saying that says that if 90% of all aircraft were going to crash, you wouldn't get on an aircraft. And 90%, of, not 90%, it's a bit unfair, but certainly 70% plus of business in general won't be positive exits. So. Correct. And I think at least at Series A stage, the last numbers that I saw were 50% by number of failure. Yeah, that's Series A. I'm talking about earlier stages. Yeah, absolutely. Here. Okay. Just before we move on, did that mini cab company fold or was it? No, still, still going. I think there's the competitive landscape is clearly changing again. Uber's in a bit of a mire, I suppose. And having operated in, in a kind of grey environment around the world because legislation mm. simply hasn't caught mm. up with technology exactly. in most places. Yeah. And so clearly Uber have had some, some issues both internally and externally. And do I think it's a winner-takes-all market in that space? No. So I think there will be room for others. And I hope this company does very well. Good. Okay. Can we talk about whether you see any difference in the way that you find deals, process them, close them and follow them and the way that angels do? I mean, I probably want to talk about how Octopus or early stage VCs or later stage VCs, whatever you class yourself up, do it. And I will interject with the odd comments about how I see it being done for angels. So we start at the top of the, the kind of pipeline, I suppose, which is where our deal flow comes from. And we see on the order 3,000 business plans per year. A lot of those come cold to us and they're just inbound emails, but a big number of them come from our wider network, either personal networks or other funds that we know, service providers, lawyers, accountants, and our portfolio is also a fantastic source of, of deal flow. As and well. your LPs, of course. Correct. It's probably a slightly longer conversation us talking about our LPs because we've got a, a mix of different types of funds, actually. Okay, so fine. our primary funds are VCTs, and we have thousands of underlying in investors because mm. we're raising money from the general public into those venture capital trust funds. But we do have some, some more typical institutional LPs as well. And yes, absolutely. They're all And some individual LPs. Correct. Well, LP will describe in the show notes. Okay, so this is a funnel coming in, 3,000. About 3,000. We meet with a few hundred per year, uh, three to 500 type of range. There's a team of 10 of us internally whose responsibility is mixed, but primarily focused on uh, bringing new businesses in and moving them through our pipeline, discovering more through the diligence process and recommending businesses for investment. So as you'd expect, there are a number of stages uh, to that process as we kind of gather information and meet with more of the team and bring our own team at Octopus Ventures up to speed on the business before making an investment. So from that 3,000 down to three to 500 meetings per year and then investing in 15 to 20 businesses per year. Right, okay. And I, I suspect there's common themes here, but what excites you about the business? And, and not just what excites you, what gets you to the point where you'll invest in a business? Yeah, of course. So there are a few key characteristics that we look out for first. As I mentioned earlier, fantastic management teams has to be the top. And I think it's the top for us, certainly. I'm sure it will be the top for most VC funds and probably for angels as well, because fundamentally in these early stage businesses, they might not have that much else. It's really about the team and what the team can create. And how do you work that out there? Is this all gut feeling or is there more to it than that? No, no, definitely not. There's, there's an element of gut feeling, but and gut feeling being kind of insight gained from experience of working with entrepreneurs, certainly. I try and look for at least three objective key criteria. And that is, 
the founder or the CEO's ability to sell. And he or she has got three things to sell. Their equity in their company. So have they sold equity to a fantastic list of investors? Have they sold to people that we respect, who we know make good decisions, who we, we know do their due diligence, who we know are difficult to impress? So that's one of the key. Two is customers, clearly. Have they been able to sell what they've got to an impressive range of customers, or an impressive number, or an impressive list, pedigree of customers? And three is the employees. Have you been able to attract A-grade employees, senior execs, out of probably very well-paid roles into this tiny startup doing something really new and innovative. And if you can solve for those kind of three objective criteria, then I think you can point to great founders and, and great entrepreneurs. Which implies obviously later stage, because to have done not the equity sell, well, certainly to equity sell, to angel, but to build a team and have sold, you're meaning you've really got a business that's already got some product market fit. Correct. So it doesn't necessarily have to have all three of those. And I think at absolutely different stages, you will see different different amounts of, of each of employees, investors and customers, clearly. So those are the, the kind of three objective criteria. I think there are also characteristics that you look for in the individual as well. Can we work with these people going forwards? Are they a fine balance between humble enough to know where their weaknesses are and take advice, and yet confident enough to be able to really espouse and sell what they know. Resilience, I think, is one of the most key characteristics because we all know that the startups go through a roller coaster ride of emotions. We ride them at one step removed as investors. So clearly they're experiencing much higher peaks and troughs than we do. And, and to be able to get through those, you need to be a strong character. Yes, okay. That's people. There are other elements to a business plan. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Another key for us is, does it fit with a venture capital business model? I think this is really where, where VCs and angels will differ most, actually. We have LPs and shareholders in our funds who we're responsible to. And we have a business model that is designed to try and make a good return for those shareholders. And that means we're investing in early stage businesses of whom a number are going to fail. We have to be able to make investments which will return sufficient funds to cover those losses and make additional returns for those shareholders. And in order to do that, the prototypical business model for doing so is you invest in 10. One is able to return the whole fund. Three or four of them will do sufficiently well to make you a good return. And five of them will fail. And if you're not investing in businesses that are capable of returning the fund or, or big proportions of the fund, then we're not doing our job properly. We've got about 700 million under management. We have to be looking for businesses that are capable of, of returning to our funds in the hundreds of millions. If you own 20% of a business at the point of exit, which we're looking to do, then you're looking for a business that's minimum going to be worth 500 million at the point of exit. And how many 500 plus millions have you had in the last, say, three years? There's one that's exited. Yeah. We're still relatively early stage funds. We were set up in 2008. So you know, the successes are actually still coming yeah, through. Yeah, it's only nine years. Correct. Which sounds like a long time, but it doesn't really from no. a really big exit. Absolutely. And that was the very first run fund raised. So a relatively small fund at that point as well. So we've, we've subsequently also been growing our funds under management at the same time. Okay, so that's quite important, that, the difference there. Mm. You mentioned that the business model requires return. Actually, most angels would also like a return Absolutely. on their investment. <laughs> and now we, we obviously have some tax reliefs, which softens the downside. But what about technology, service, deep tech, not so deep tech, brand building, etc.? Have you any particular focus? 
in terms of the businesses that we're looking to invest in. Correct. So as a fund, not really. We are a sector generalist. We're geographically constrained in that we're looking for businesses with a UK presence. Ideally, the senior management team is, is based in the UK and we're, we're investing in companies in the UK. But as a fund, no, we, we tend to stay away from life sciences. It's a different type of risk investing in businesses that need to go through clinical trials, for example. But otherwise, anything that fits that VC business model, i.e. is attacking a market that is sufficiently large that you can grow a big, maybe half billion pound business. And two, that's able to scale over a reasonable timeframe, you know, five to 10 year type timeframe from being single digit, worth single digit millions up to being worth hundreds of millions at, at the point of exit. And that excludes, naturally excludes some types of business, consultancies, agencies, these types of things. But as long as it fits those models, we're very happy to look across a range of markets and sectors and verticals and business models, actually. So everything from B2C type businesses like a Zoopla or a Grays or a Secret Escapes, all the way through to semiconductor businesses, advanced materials businesses that are really you know, still in the, the kind of product development cycle. It'll be a long time before they get to market. Have you got an amount of money you'd like to deploy in the journey of a business? Or does that vary so much you can't answer that? It varies a lot. Yeah. As I mentioned, we'd like to get to a kind of significant minority holding in these businesses. That's typically meaning in the, in the double-digit percent holdings of companies. But we're still a minority investor. So we're looking to back management teams. We don't want to take majority stakes in these businesses. With 700 million under management, we've got quite a lot of money to deploy. So we're, we're typically looking at least over the lifetime of an investment to try and invest in the 10 to 15 million sterling type range. But part of the process that we go through is making a, a smaller initial investment and then learning as much as we can along with the entrepreneurs through the course of that kind of first period of investment journey. And we can make a much better informed decision at the second investment. Than we so you're going as low as quarter of a million, would you? We have done, yeah. So yeah. the full range of check size is from 250,000 all the way up to 25 million. For the first for check? For, uh, no, no, in total. No, in, in terms yeah. of the check size that we can write. Yeah, okay. For a first check, we're typically looking uh, at series A and seed investing. So that's between 250,000 at the low end and 5 million at the top end. Right, excellent. So this has now got to the point of investing. Can we now talk from that point onwards mm. the journey? How you get involved in terms of monitoring the company, adding value, etc.? Yeah. So we almost always take a board seat or an observer seat when we're investing in a company. And that's really important for us because we are an active investor. We're trying to be as helpful as we can to the entrepreneur. Also, as I mentioned before, when we're looking to make that second investment, the follow-on investment decision, we want to be as well informed about the business as possible, and that means being close to the business. And typically, when you're sitting on the board, you're seeing the information come through, you're riding the journey with the entrepreneur and the other board members, getting to understand where the challenges are and, and where the exciting opportunities are. So we will almost always have somebody from the team who's helping the entrepreneur by sitting on the board. In terms of the other services that we can provide to help companies, we've got a portfolio of about 60 businesses today. That's very helpful for a couple of reasons. One, it gives us some kind of volume purchasing power leverage so that we can help with service providers and um, recruiters, this type of thing. Two, we can step out of the way and, and put companies in contact with each other. So they have a common 
investor or common thread, which is us. And that means that we can facilitate that interaction. And a slightly later stage business, for example, can help an earlier stage business when they're trying to tackle the same challenges uh, that each have faced. Well, I've been doing this. I have about 60 investments. Mm. Well. I've made 60. There aren't 60 left. And I'm trying to do that more than I do at the moment. At the moment, I do it amongst a group of about 15 out of that lot. Yep. But there's only me. So have you got some sort of platform to do that, to interconnect the startups? We're doing it by email threads, actually. We've, okay. we've had a look at a range of different types of technology. And email threads tend to be just the most simple and work the best. Most people are already using their email as the primary kind of communication channel and to do but that needs that needs a central point doesn't it that's a central hub so they've got to come in and out of that they can't unless they've already met each other they can't and that's the key so we try and hold drinks and meetups so that our ceos and, and founders and so different functional heads can meet each other and also kind of various themed events as well so that we try and get some interaction and that just absolutely lubricates the email channel and means that people are much more comfortable getting in contact how well with each other. Your, I, i'd be like under perform on that and I'm quite concerned about that and I'll do something about it. How well do you think you perform on that? We're getting better all the time. I don't know how we could how you me- how do you measure it. How we could benchmark it exactly. <laughs> so I think it's a challenging one to answer in absolute terms. We're definitely seeing an improvement over time. So we're getting better at it and at the face-to-face meetups definitely help. And there are other things you'll add value to, I suspect. You know other investors, you're well connected. So there's other elements. You're not going to be the only investor in the later the B round or the C round, are you? No, absolutely not. So the network is key. It falls into a, a few categories, uh, one of which is our venture partner network. So we used to have a, and we still do have a, a very wide range of uh, different venture partners. We also have a set of 10 individuals who are on our payroll who we call our kind of operating venture partners. These are people from all walks of life, different backgrounds. They're typically people who have specific functional skill sets that we see the portfolio lacking. Mm. So, for example, there is a guy called Ian Perry who's been working with us for the last couple of years. He's an NED and chair at a number of different boards, but in his kind of pre-plural life, if you like, he built and grew sales teams B2B software companies. He did it a number of times very, very successfully. One of the most common problems we see at Series A is, or at least post-Series A, is founders and CEOs handing the sales job over to a sales team. And it's a really tough transition because a CEO or a founder knows everything about the product. They can sell to anybody because they know they know exactly where the problems lie. They've seen it before. They built the product to solve these problems but they haven't necessarily productized what they've got. They haven't productized the sale. They don't have a step-by-step repeatable process. And so when they try to hand the sales across to somebody else who's come new into the business, everything goes to the right. So mm. sales flat line, because the, the CEO or founder has stepped away from the sales role and, and suddenly have handed it to somebody who's having to relearn all of this. Mm. And that's not necessarily what they're good at. They're good at being given a product and selling, selling the hell out of the product. Mm. So Ian works with our portfolio companies post-series A in their go-to-market strategy. How do you productize what you've got? How do you make sure that the messaging is exactly right for the type of customer you're going after? Who is the perfect customer for this product at this point? Should you really be growing the pipeline or should you be cutting it back and shrinking it to the the core set of customers who are really going to find value in this? Whereas you may be able to sell it if you're a good sales guy. If you haven't sold the right product to the right person who actually needs it, they're going to churn at some point, and that's going to cause you problems. Mm-hmm.
So we've got 10 operating venture partners who work with the portfolio companies to help them solve these specific issues. So that's another key area where we're trying to add value. And I think the, the last one that I would highlight this point is the work that we've been doing in helping our companies internationalize outside the UK. So for many companies, the UK is a big market. For some, and certainly for many at a certain stage, the UK becomes smaller than their ambition and they would like to go elsewhere. And we've seen time and time again, companies struggle to expand outside the UK, in particular, for example, going to the US. A number of companies try it, try it, I think, too early, underestimating the challenges that they'll face there. And they really struggle and have to retrench and it's cost them a lot of money to do so. So we've been spending a lot of time working out why companies fail, what questions they should be asking, and what's the right time and, and the right amount of money and the right resource to go and tackle new and international markets. So we actually just uh, published a few weeks ago a long ebook, if you will, on how companies should tackle expanding to the US. We have a small team in the US whose job is to help our portfolio expand across there and answer the, the same questions that Every company struggles with when they move across. Should I set up a new company there? Should it be an office? Should I go East Coast, West Coast? What do I do about healthcare? What do I do about holidays? All the similar learning that all these companies go through, they've been helping these companies by centralizing that research in one place and also helping the boards of those companies before they make the decision to go to assess how much money is it going to cost us? Is it the right time? What problems is it going to cause? So Priscilla Bala, who is one of our US leads, has put that piece of work together. I'll happily provide you the links so that you can share it with your followers. It's a fantastic piece of work. I would strongly recommend that anybody who's considering going across to the US read through it. And, and if you're interested, uh, get in touch with Priscilla. Well, let's move on to exits as well. Obviously, we like exits. Now, I just want to talk about where the a level of misalignment can occur between funds, angels, and founders. And I've, I've experienced this myself last year, where the larger investors wasn't going to move on the needle that much on the exit, so they wanted to carry on. They had more money. The founders and the early stage angels were thinking the risk might increase again if we had more money. Have you met that in your five years here? I think it is... It's a persistent challenge in the ecosystem. I think there are a number of different solutions to that, that challenge. But uh, primarily, I think every entrepreneur, every, every small business should really evaluate what type of funding they need and at what point. So one of the critical things that I tell entrepreneurs when I go and give presentations is really need to assess whether venture capital money is the right type of money for your business. I've used this analogy in the past. Venture capital money is a bit like adding rocket fuel to a business. And there are really good things to adding rocket fuel. Clearly, you're never going to escape the atmosphere if you've got a prop plane. But equally, you're not able to slow down. Right? Mm. And uh, if you suddenly decide that, actually, I don't want to escape the atmosphere, I want to stay you know, stratosphere, then uh, you don't really get the option to jump off that ship once and, and if you if, if the next chunk of fuel is not available correct crash and then, then, the crash then you might have problems more as well yeah so you can take the metaphor uh, a little bit further but uh i don't think it's it's necessarily a huge problem in in all circumstances the way that i think about exits is it's not necessarily a full exit for every shareholder at every stage. You can think about exits as a refreshing of the shareholder base of the company. Who are the right shareholders for the company 
at this stage of the company. So at the early stages, absolutely, you're looking for individuals who are willing to take a high-risk option. At the next stage, you need institutional investors who've got the deeper pockets to be able to fund the deeper cash low points and get the business through and, and spinning nicely. At some point in the future, it may be the private equity investor is the best shareholder for the business because they're looking to roll up a number of different businesses in the same sector. Or potentially a large corporate who've got really deep pockets for R&D and they're bringing the company in to try and spearhead a new leg of product development, for example. So you can think about exits in lots of different ways. And at each of those points, there's the potential for earlier shareholders to get a return on, but, on but the is money. But this secondary market, Not always. have you experienced that? Yeah, abs- yes, yeah. We, we absolutely have. Give us an example. An example would be Grays. So this is a business who sell snack boxes. You'll see them now in Sainsbury's and Smith's, but originally they started as a subscription business. So you'd go online, you'd have a look at the snacks that you want to come through your letterbox, you'd make an order, you'd say, I'd like a box a week or a couple of boxes a month, something like this, and they'd be delivered to your office or to your home. We partially exited that business when Carlisle, private equity investor, became a shareholder a couple of years back. And that was a really good exit for a number of the early angels in the business. Including Octopus. Including us. It was a partial exit for us as well. But we chose to retain a stake in that business, and it's still going from strength to strength. But at the point that Carlisle came in, it was an option for the various shareholders to decide whether they wanted to stay on that journey or whether they wanted to take the, the very good return that they'd seen from early days until that point. You have 70 investments, you said. How many every year do you think this secondary happens then? I mean, you might not know the number, but... We can always put in the show notes afterwards if you can work. Yeah, it out. I don't think I do know the number. Not that many at this point. As I say, there's there's definitely a gradient of uh, differing levels of maturity in the portfolio because we continue to make new investments, and uh, the oldest investments are now coming up to kind of seven or eight years old. Mm. So those would be the most mature. They're the ones who are being approached more frequently. But it, it's down to the board of the company, and oftentimes that's still heavily the founders and the management team must decide whether they want to continue on this journey or or whether they want out. Yeah, okay. Let's talk a bit more about the difference in VC and angel Mm. funding. I've got a few ideas, of course. Can you give me what you'd like to say? Sure. Clearly, there's a number of differences, some similarities as well. I think the one that sticks out for me is probably motivation and responsibilities, I suppose. They're the, the two that really stand out. On the motivation side, most financial venture capital investors are purely focused on the financial returns in the business, at least at a fund level. At an individual level, clearly there may be different motivations, but the reward structures and incentives inherent in these businesses are set up and designed to promote financial gain as a result of making these investments. And I think that can be very different to angel investors. Clearly, there's a spectrum within angel investors. Some are purely going to be looking at the financial side of making an investment in these companies, but others are looking for both the financial and the kind of operational. They like getting involved, they like being hands-on and and helping with these startup companies. There's a range of different types of angel investor, some who are doing it on the side, whereas their day job is clearly something else, and some who are investing in small companies full-time and it becomes what they do on a daily basis. So I think with angels, you sometimes have to be careful about reading the motivation of an investor. Why are you interested in making an investment? 
Whereas with a financial VC, for right or for wrong, you can pretty much guarantee they're in this to make a return. And while that's a one-track mind, that can be very helpful when you're trying to assess the different motivations of your underlying shareholder base. And yes, and I, I certainly notice that angels generally are more founder-friendly, and I don't mean that in too negative a way, but uh, angels will always invest partly for tax relief reasons in ordinary shares, which the founders have. Whereas at VC, you will, Optimus usually goes in with some level of preference, is that fair to say? Uh, not at the seed stage, actually. When we're making seed investments, we are going into all ordinary shares alongside the angels. We pride ourselves actually on being as entrepreneur friendly as it's possible to be for a venture capital fund, which actually I think is pretty friendly towards entrepreneurs. So we do go into all odds. We try and mimic as much as we possibly can the rights that you'd see angels investing in at seed stage. And clearly, as you go up through the, the different funding rounds, uh, the market norms become slightly different. So you're right, at Series A, a one-times non-participating liquidation preference is the market standard. Can you just explain that for those in the audience who haven't Absolutely. heard that before? So that means that those shareholders or those investors, sorry, who are participating at that round would get their money coming back first on a, a sale or liquidation of the business. And then the other shareholders, which are typically ordinary shareholders, will catch up. So whereas they haven't seen the first money come out, they then catch up so that everybody has shared equally, effectively, on a per share basis. Providing the exit is high enough. Providing the exit is high enough. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise. And then everybody shares equally together thereafter. Yes. Okay. The other thing that I think might be different, one of the reasons for this podcast series and, and the book later is the concept of upskilling angels to be better investors, so contributing. Now, not everybody's an entrepreneur, not everybody can help on the board. What level of skills do you have in the team in terms of entrepreneurial experience? Because early stage, that's before when it becomes institutionalized, I certainly understand corporate management is much more important, but early stage, particularly for their young founders, yeah. it's help from somebody who's done it before. Yeah. And I think there are a few different sources. So within the team, you know, the founders of our team actually were entrepreneurs themselves. So the history of Octopus Ventures, it was set up as an angel network by a small group of individuals. And they set it up as a business. And that business was acquired by Octopus and became the Ventures team. So the genesis of the Ventures team is an entrepreneurial one. And similarly, you'll find with other funds, right? People mm. have set them up as, mm. as a business. And so there'll be entrepreneurs and investors in that sense. Also, we have three entrepreneurs in our team and they've come from setting up their own businesses and decided to jump ship to the other side of the table. So there's a bit of experience on, on that side in our team as well. But actually, I don't think you necessarily need to have an entrepreneurial background to have some of the empathy with the entrepreneurs. I sit on six portfolio company boards. I ride the highs and lows alongside the boards and the entrepreneurs who are going through that journey. Uh, we, we can see how difficult it is in the hard times and we experience the highs when they're going through the exciting sales and the exits. What about saving them from making mistakes? That's one of the... I mean, you've obviously learned a lot. You couldn't have sat on six boards when you joined Octopus, clearly. No. So you've learned a lot on that process. How Absolutely. much of that is important of giving So that's that part of it. And, and you look for each board member to contribute differently. So, so absolutely, we'd like to have on the boards, especially with first-time founders, people with grey hair around the table who are able to tell these people 
the problems that they face, the challenges that they faced in scaling the business from nothing up to a successful exit. But equally, there are other challenges where you don't necessarily need to have that direct experience to be able to feed in. Fundraising challenges, nobody better placed to advise an entrepreneur on who you should go and speak to about fundraising, what's the right time to go fundraising, how much you should be looking for, what your valuation expectations should be than a VC investor or an angel investor because they're in the market doing this all the time. Whereas an entrepreneur might go out and fundraise once every couple of years. I'm looking at businesses on a day-to-day basis. The portfolio companies that I look after you know, are raising on average every 18 months. And so I see lots of different investment rounds and speak to lots of different investors. So I should be able to input more on, on that side than an entrepreneur. But you know, that does lead to conflict, which we've mentioned before. It does. A conflict between what the entrepreneur wants, what you want as an investor, what the company wants, because all those are subtly different, aren't they? Mm. But there are other things we can input on as well. We see the good and the bad when things go well and things go wrong. So when we're talking through legal documents and looking at the various different clauses, oftentimes entrepreneurs will be thinking about these, what happens in, it's unlikely that this is going to happen. So should I really care about it? We've seen those things happen. We've got 60 portfolio companies. We've likely seen all those clauses at least examined in detail at points throughout our investing history. And so we can advise, you know, this is actually going to be really important. Think about a situation in which this happens or that happens. How do you want to negotiate that point going forwards? Or options, that's another classic area where we can feed in really heavily because we've we've seen people go through this journey of deciding, actually, I think our option plan should look like this. Well, now, are you sure? Because we've had situations where we've seen this cause real problems with this type of person, that type of person, because you cause misalignment, bonus plans, and these types of things as well. So we have sufficient experience on boards as in investors that we see a lot of the challenges that entrepreneurs will see at least at a kind of board level fundraising level which is exactly this project actually and we will have a whole section on options because that's so complex that and certain vesting and x and good leave or bad leave there's certain things that continually getting misunderstood or not 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 just not known yeah so yes i think you definitely want to have some experience and gray hair around what it takes to grow a business from the operational side, whether it's an advisory board, whether it's a chair, whether it's an NED or a board member. Yes, absolutely. I don't think it has to come from the investor. And you certainly don't have any grey hair. Not yet. <laughs> any other difference between angel and VCs that you can think of? I think there's a responsibility difference. It's linked to motivation, but clearly our sources of funds are from our shareholders who are individuals who have their own motivations, primarily financial, and that feeds through to what we need to do on behalf of them. So we have a fiduciary duty to our shareholders, and that's clearly something that angels don't have. They're investing more often than not out of their own pocket, either they're looking for their financial return or or not, depending on the individual, but their responsibility is, is typically only to themselves or and their partner. Wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and, and that can create some challenges in, when investing with those two parties together, because we have to think about the financial return and our shareholders in all the decisions that we yes. make. Yes, which might lead to stronger decisions than an angel would make. Potentially, potentially. Yes. In I'm some sure cases. it does as well. Yeah. Before we finish, can we talk about a, a great story that we've actually interviewed Simon Thorpe about this, mm-hmm. and he's mentioned SwiftKey. So when did you get involved with SwiftKey? As a, as a, or was this before your time? Probably was. So the first investment was before my time. So I joined in 2012. I think the first investment we made was a seed stage investment pre-product into John and Ben 
in 2010. So it was a couple of years before I joined. But you were the biggest investor, weren't you? Is that true? We were. We yeah. were the first institutional investor mm-hmm. in the business. And we were joined by Index and then Axel throughout the journey, but we continued to follow on into that business throughout. Okay. And that was a great exit, wasn't it? It was a great exit. A fantastic team. I sold to Microsoft a couple of years ago, uh, 2016, I think, mm-hmm. for a reported $250 million. Fantastic set of guys, and we've seen them already. The, the management team there has gone on to do great things. Some of them still with Microsoft and working with SwiftKey. Uh, some of them have left to do other things and, and start new companies. And we we very much hope that they enjoyed the ride alongside us. And we've already started to see them come back to us and look for funding for their next ventures. Yes, I backed um, Rod, who was the CEO yeah. of SwiftKey, with this new. Special edge. edge, yes, mm. okay. Well, excellent. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. That's been really interesting. A different viewpoint from the angels we've interviewed before. And uh, I wish you well. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you.